It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and this is uh, going to be a fun show today. It's going to be an interesting show, to be sure. We're going to be coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to revisit a couple of uh, interviews I did with people from New Orleans, and we'll hear some some Dixieland music, and we'll be commemorating uh, Fat Tuesday and Mardi Gras. I don't have the punch keys here yet, but soon after the show, they will arrive, and I will way overdo it, as I do every year for Mardi Gras. But I'll be talking with uh, C.Q. Scafidi, who wrote the book Time Courier, set in uh, New Orleans. And he was uh, raised in New Orleans, knows a great deal about the history of New Orleans, and in particular Mardi Gras there. And then uh, uh, David and Rosalind, Rosalind uh, Lionheart from Flint, and um, David uh, Leonard, and they've been they've been married for about 50 years and, and live in New Orleans, and they are street performers, and they regularly appear with the uh, Rex crew uh, for the big parade uh, today. And we're going to talk with them for a few minutes and hear some of their music. That's all coming up during the 11 o'clock hour. During the, the middle of the show, the, the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with... Um, Author Susan Plunkett, who uh, has uh, come out with the second of um, the second book in the Mission from Venus trilogy, it's called The Wanderers on Earth. But first, we're going to um, look ahead a little bit to uh, April and in May, which will commemorate the uh, 50th anniversary of Vietnam War protests on the campus of uh, Columbia University, where my guest this hour was studying at the time, and he's written a book that is part novel. Well, it, it, it's a novel that reads like a memoir, kind of. Uh, there's a, a little bit of uh, debate as to whether the, the protagonist is uh, modeled after the author, but my guest is... Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schneider, and uh, he joins me by phone. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. And after all that, I forgot to mention the name of the book is The Serpent Papers. Yes. But let's talk about um, this period of time. It was 1972, in mostly in April, a little bit into May. Um, 
But all over the country, there were demonstrations and protests against the war in Vietnam. What, what stands out or should stand out in people's minds about what happened at Columbia University? Well, first of all, there was a backdrop. Uh, Kent State, the protests there, which were mild in terms of they weren't aggressive or strident, but the National Guard came in, of course, and shot four kids. That was 1970. And so there was a precedent to a lot of the uh, unrest over the war. The Vietnam War... um, had been going on for some time, and President Nixon came in and said he would de-escalate the war. What happened in the spring of 1972 was that he was having peace talks in Paris with the North Vietnam's emissary, Le Duc Tho, and in order to impress on North Vietnam that if they don't have peace, he would be tough on them, he escalated the war and in three ways. Number one, he increased the draft of young men and took away student deferments. For the first time, college students would not be deferred from the war. They would be drafted with everyone else, which may in fact have been just, but he did that to increase the number of bodies that could be sent to Southeast Asia. The second thing is he widened the geographic area of the war into non-combatant nations, including Laos and Cambodia. Uh, So he did those two things. And the third thing he did was he escalated the bombing of Hanoi. Actually, he restarted it and escalated it. Uh, And on campuses across the country, especially at Columbia, um, people were upset that he was widening the war to get a peace. In other words, we're at the point where the nation wanted peace in in Southeast Asia, And he was accelerating the war because he said that would help get peace. So while we were getting peace, there would be more deaths. And Vietnam had 60,000 deaths. So everyone was upset about this. And at Columbia, um, I was there and I protested against the war. Um, Now, it was a time of the Cold War. So there was an arms race with the Soviet Union. The American Americans were afraid of communism and the spread of communism. So there were real fears about, and possibly justifiable fears, about our rivalry with the Soviet Union and with communism and possibly with China. <clears throat> so we didn't want South Vietnam to become communist and join North Vietnam. And that, that's understood. On the other hand, we had had enough of war and the war was not doing what it was supposed to do. We were not winning it. So uh, myself included, uh, many folks protested the war. Um, The veterans who came home uh, came home to uh, the antagonism of those who protested against the war. And this horrified me in a way because the veterans were not responsible for the uh, conduct of the war. They were fighting the war. And they were fighting the war as patriots, I thought, because they believed in um, stemming communism and uh, thwarting the spread of Soviet influence in the world. And they were trying to protect America. And I felt that was a noble cause. 
uh, but the war wasn't working. It wasn't a war like World War II, where we had Hitler, who was a monster, and we had to fight the monster. And we, it was a that was a righteous war, although the war is really good. But the war in Vietnam wasn't a righteous war. It wasn't. And, uh, and I agree with you, Jeff. The the soldiers coming home were being held responsible for the people that were really giving the orders and making the decisions. Yes, it, it was, it was and, heartbreaking and for unfairly. me. And, and I think that's one of the lessons learned from that era. We, we treat returning soldiers very differently. At least the public does. Yes, I, I agree. But the, what happened then with protesters, I mean, when veterans came to parade, protesters, I, in some cases, spat on them. They were, uh, they were haggling them. They were uh, screaming at them. This appalled me. I mean, I was against the war, but this is not... We shouldn't have been antagonistic to the veterans who had given their lives, in many cases, to fight that war and to protect America for reasonable, uh, reasonable historical cause. Um, that broke my heart. So my writing this book, in a sense, is to bring about a resolution to my own upset over the war and to help my generation get over the war, because my generation, the baby boomers, was very split over this war. This was the major event for my generation, and many of us are still uh, you know, in a quandary as to how to resolve our thinking on this war. So the book is meant to put it in a perspective. It is histor historical fiction. It is a novel, but um, I've, I've tried to write it in as journalistic a fashion as possible so that the reality of the times comes through. And it's it's um, it's considered almost a memoir because of the fact that that so much of the history in this novel you lived. Yeah, and um, you know Joan Baum and her NPR review of a book of the book said it reads like a memoir, but it's not. And it really isn't, because my main character <clears throat> is not me. I mean, he was an Irish Catholic American from Virginia. I'm not Irish Catholic American, and I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not from Virginia originally, although I live here now. And many other things about his father was a, a rear admiral, and my father was not in the military. I think that... Um, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm not like the character, but of course, when you write a book, you're going to understand your character, and in order to understand your character, you must have at least at some point related to some of the things that your character does and thinks. The thing I have in, con in, in common with my character is that he went to Columbia University. In fact, if I could digress and say a little bit about the story, um, the Serpent Papers is the story of my protagonist, J.B., who's raised in a relatively violent world in the 60s and who chooses to matriculate in Columbia, at Columbia in 1971 rather than join the military, as did his father and his forefathers. He's a Southern boy, he's conservative Catholic, um, and he exemplifies the struggles of his generation and the challenges they face, balancing patriotism with rejection of the war. So I have a character who basically embraces both sides 
of the arguments of those who fought and those who protested. Now, when he arrives at Columbia, he's immediately thrust into an anti-war atmosphere, and he becomes ideologically trapped between his the fact that his best friend is fighting in Vietnam overseas and that he feels he should be with him, and trapped also by Columbia University's, excuse me, cauldron sort of of anti-war culture and protest. And with this moral quandary of the escalating war, and as it comes to a head, his own conscience, and as Forward Reviews says, the conscience of the nation was on his mind. There are ratcheting tensions, bullhorns are, are inciting students to protest, and then there is an, a pro-war and anti-war faction, factions colliding on campus in riots. Um, and JB, my protagonist, is forced to make the decision that defines his life, and that will hopefully resolve his feelings about the war and will resolve my generation's feelings about the war. And and although the the book is telling the story of of what was going on at Columbia University at the time and JB's story um you're viewing these events through his eyes but how can you not at least to some degree as you're writing the book Jeff um describe these events as you saw them well i find that me myself personally i as I said a few minutes ago, I do straddle both sides of the <laughs> argument. I, I feel for the veterans. I feel, and more than that, I mean, I am a physician, and I was, well, I'm a retired professor of medicine, and I worked for 22 years in the, uh, the United States Veterans Administration hospital system. So in a lot of, in, in a large way, I, de I dedicated my professional life to taking care of veterans, and many of them Vietnam veterans. Uh, I ran an ICU, an intensive care unit, in a VA hospital for f 15 years amongst, uh, during my entire career. And I have, I have wanted to serve the veterans. I liked serving the veterans. I felt there was value in serving the veterans, and it made me feel better. And perhaps that is in some way makes up for the fact that I protested against the war in which they fought. Uh, my feelings were mixed. I feel the rift of my generation. And I feel that, I, and I always felt it, even when I protested at Columbia, I felt bad for the veterans who, had, who were giving their lives, who were patriots, and who were my age fighting in Southeast Asia. So, yes, I guess in that way, you are right. Um, who I am is embodied in some ways in my major, in my main character. Yes. Jeff, I have to take a short break here, but I want to talk some more about this book and the the time that it's uh, uh, being released. It's coming out today. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Of course. I'm at your disposal. All right. My, my guest is uh, Jeff Schneider, the author of The Serpent Papers. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner Program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of The Serpent Papers, Dr. Jeff Schneider, a uh, graduate of the Columbia College class of 75 and retired full professor from Eastern Virginia Medical College. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. I'm glad to be back. Um just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, the similarities between the main character in this historic novel and um, and you, because you went to uh, Columbia University at that time, nearly 50 years ago, and um, saw some of these protests that are described in the book firsthand and uh, participated in some of those protests, as I understand it. Um, can can you describe a little bit what the the environment was like once these protests uh, uh, kicked into high gear, starting uh, in mid-April of 1972? I can. Um, first of all, the I was actually at the protest, the most violent day of the protest, which was the riot that occurred in front of Hamilton Hall on April 25th, uh, when New York's tactical patrol force, the tactical police of New York City with um, plastic battle shields, helmets, uh, and and full uh, riot gear came to campus to confront the students. The students were protesting on a quad, which was uh, surrounded on three sides by dormitory brick buildings, which w- through which there were no spaces between the buildings to get out. So, and on the fourth side were the police. And the book describes what happened, but basically uh, the students were trapped and had to face the um, onslaught of the police. <clears throat> but the campus itself was it it es- it, it slowly increased the uh, the protests against the war there were gripes against the fact that uh, some of the physics professors had grants from the government to study war technology and it was said that they were mining the ho chi minh trail in cambodia and laos with weapons being developed at columbia so uh, the students were unhappy about the war effort being uh, worked at at Columbia. They they were not happy about this. And they were not happy about the escalation of the war. And eventually what happened was the students uh, shut down the university and finals were uh, did not take place. Classes were abandoned. Students took over buildings and uh, the school year ended that way. It was sort of up in the air. Um, so, I mean, we got credits for the... <laughs> for having worked for a semester until the end, but um, it was sort of, uh, it sort of ended before its time, if you will, and it was, it was interesting, it was different, but the students uh, had made their point. Um, and the university president eventually apologized to the students and to all of Columbia for having brought police on the campus. And really, it wasn't that the police did anything wrong. They did what was expected of them. It was that the administration of Columbia in uh, communication with the mayor's office of New York, brought the police there. That was the decision that really held the responsibility of what happened on campus. 
So they were heady times, and there was some violence, and there were arrests and some injuries. Nobody got killed. Nobody had brain damage, luckily. Uh, but it was it was tumultuous. There was a, a phrase when you were talking about the event on April 25th, and, and I, I'm looking at some of the different, um, well, protests. Uh, I'm looking at a Columbia University protest timeline, and there's there's a word that I had completely forgotten about um, that was used in these uh, student protests and, and demonstrations. Um, you were talking about the uh, tactical police uh, from New York surrounding hundreds of students on the Van Am Quad and stormed their demonstrations in the most violent day of Columbia University's student strike against the Vietnam War. I had completely forgotten that the college protests, many of them around the country, were being considered strikes by the students. Yes. Um, that's the way it was uh, spoken about, and that's pretty much what happened. And that's how the classes were shut down. Uh, the students were physically in the way of of people going to classes, not that they barred them from entering buildings, but because um, they didn't. But they were, uh, and there was a lot of tumult, and there were a few, very few kids in the classes. I mean, I remember some professors insisted on holding their classes, and we sat in the grass on one of the quads that was not the Van Ang quad, and we had a few students, and we, we talked about things, but um, there were no final exams, and it was very informal at that point. Uh, for those small gatherings. So, in effect, it, the students were on strike, and uh, they did they did cause the university to come to a screeching halt. So, yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, and we're on strike, and the war. Ho, 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 chi, men. One, two, three, four, we don't want your blank war. These were things, you know, that people were saying as they marched along. The um, I, I, I feel like I, I want to ask you, Jeff, um, because you've written so much about this uh, particular period of time at Columbia University and, and looked at it sort of up close and personal, um, what you were thinking uh, as, as you saw some of the things that unfolded with Black Lives Matter the last couple of summers in, in the events at the Capitol on January 6th of 2021. Uh, is, there, is there something different about protests now, or are protests always a little bit on the edge of getting out of control? Um, I am not an expert on these most current events, uh, not in the way that I am I've, I've researched the events that happened when I was at Columbia. So I'm sort of... Yeah, Jeff, I'm I don't not want trying to... I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am curious as somebody who has explored those events, what what you were thinking when you saw these other things unfold. Not Not as an expert, but somebody who is a little bit more aware about these things and what goes into them and what happens inside them than most well, of us. Yeah. I, I can comment on some things. And what I can say is there are contemporary parallels to what happened in 1972 in the Vietnam War and the protests then. 
there are parallels with some of things that are happening today. Um, Thucydides in 440 BC, a Greek uh, philosopher and historian, um, when Athens was fighting against Sparta, made the famous phrase for the first time that history repeats itself. So I would say, number one, there are things we can learn if we look back just 50 years, we can learn about what was happening 50 years ago that are repeating today. If people would care to look at it and think about it. Um, some of what happened then, which haunted me, as I say, was the intolerance of one side for the other. In other words, the protesters were highly intolerant to the veterans. The veterans were angry. The soldiers returning were angry. And the pro-war factions in the United States were angry at those who were protesting. And there was a mutual enmity or dislike. And there was a mutual intolerance. And you see a lot of that today. Um, I don't think it's helpful. You see it, um, as Joan Baum said, there are parallels between Afghanistan's fall which was very sudden, very precipitous. And it sort of brings back, it echoes what happened in Vietnam, the images of a, a helicopter falling off the roof of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Um, you know, there are parallels to the endings of these two wars. Um, there is an atmosphere of intolerance today, of course, a divide in politics uh, with, with enmity in general American life. And two different views of what's going on today, uh, the people who hold those views are not really in a positive or constructive discussion, which is what I would like to see. And that's, my book is, is an attempt to make a positive discussion about the Vietnam War. Not that everyone has to end up agreeing with each other, but that there should be a discussion so that at least the two ends of the spectrum can understand better uh, why they differed in the way they looked at things. And I think that would be good if we could, do that, could, could achieve that today. And I also think that uh, for both administrations, the one before the current one and the current one, I think there's been a lack of having a dialogue between the two ends of the spectrum to bring people together. Uh, to heal the whole nation. I think there needs to be a dialogue to heal the nation, and I don't see it happening. And I think the dialogue could begin with the government, but if it doesn't, the government should not be aggravating the, uh, the ideological conflict. And, some, and I happen to see that the government, in you know, it's nonpartisan fashion. The government uh, now and a few years ago are, is not really helping to heal our wounds, and I'd like to see it. There's still this intolerance, and for me, that's that's a bad thing. I think government should work on. Now, COVID has also, um, which is not, it's not, it shouldn't be a political topic, but for me, COVID has become a political topic, and I think Americans, uh, many Americans, find like the way they feel about the draft, that being told what they have to do with their bodies is not something the government should be doing. I mean, the draft occurs, and basically the government is saying, look, you have to go serve your country. You may die. We own your body. That's a tough pill to swallow, and sometimes it's necessary. Um, and the vaccine as well. Um, you know, when the government says you're going to lose your job, you're going to pay for this and that and the other thing if you don't get vaccinated, 
that's pretty, that's a tough pill for some people to swallow, and it's not particularly American. And I want to say that as a physician and as a lung doctor, which I am, and as an intensive care physician, as I am, and I am board certified in both and a professor of both uh, fields, that this vaccine is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, medical achievement in the history of humankind. I am so terribly for this vaccine. I think everybody should have it. But I fall short of saying that everyone should be forced to have it or that everyone should be brought kicking and screaming to have it or that they're going to lose their jobs if they don't have it. I well, think Jeff, the job one, of the, the... one of the problems is it used to be if someone with the kind of credentials you have came out and said, this is good for you, you should take this, people would. They didn't have to be um, mandated to take it or or forced to take it for fear of losing their jobs. Um, I, I agree with that. And, and, I, and they I, don't I, trust, and, and I, I don't want to put this on you, but they don't trust, you know, <laughs> Anthony Fauci or, or anyone else that's serving as a spokesperson for uh, public health um, there's there's just this this sense that if I don't already feel that way, I don't trust anyone who's telling me differently. Yeah, I I, I think that, and there's more problems. As a physician, I've seen disagreements between the CDC and the NIH, of which Fauci is uh, the head of one of the institutions of the of within the NIH, the Infectious Disease Division. Um, you know, I idolized, and we all did in my generation of physicians, I idolized Anthony Fauci. But I, I do not think that it serves the nation for him to be so political over the vaccines. And I think there should have been more of a dialogue about it. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I regret that people don't trust physicians. And on the other hand, I see that there may be some people who reasonably don't trust physicians in some cases, but also there's an internet now. And internet, the internet has a lot of misinformation, and that's causing absolute chaos. It's, it comes right out of the Bible. It's a total tower of Babel. Everybody is saying everything. People want to be the center of attention, and they want more hits on their websites so they can say they can become more and more famous and make more money and get paid by the, the social media engines for having so many followers. And, and this is the wrong way to disseminate information. I think, I think there's a big problem with reliability of the media. And uh, that upsets me more than anything uh, because people are getting misinformation and some of their conclusions, based upon the misinformation they hear, if they take that misinformation as gospel, their conclusions are not not wrong. But the problem is the information is wrong. So it is the, the misinformation era in the uh, from the internet is 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 a real problem, and America hasn't grappled with that yet. On top of intolerance, that becomes a, you know misinformation plus intolerance equals total chaos. <laughs> well, yeah, Jeff, and, and you know, I, I'm basically on the same page with you about, you know, there needs to be um, civilized conversation and dialogue about, you know, the different sides of, of any particular issue. 
Um, did that ever happen with regard to the uh, the Vietnam War, or did it just end and and uh, fall into history? Well, that's. I don't think that there has been a satisfactory resolution to a lot of the issues surrounding the early 1970s. You know, especially you, the you talked War. about Nixon escalating the war while at the same time trying to conduct the, the Paris peace talks and, and moving into uh, Laos and Cambodia and, and stepping up the bombing of Hanoi and so on. And, and from Nixon's era perspective his generation if you will it, it it i think it was his hope to win the war and end the war and that just didn't that didn't happen and and so his efforts backfired yeah he he wanted quote unquote and this is a quote directly from him and he said it repeatedly and he also said why he was escalating the war um, out loud. It wasn't a secret. Even though he promised to do exactly the opposite, he went ahead and escalated the war, much the way Johnson had done before him. Um, but he wanted peace with honor. That was the phrase he wanted. He decided that the United States had to have peace with honor. The honor of the United States would be um, fulfilled better if another 5,000, 10,000 young men were killed or sacrificed in the war. And that was something I I couldn't agree with, um, you know, I, I couldn't see that. And a lot of other people couldn't either, you know, why should these young men die? Uh, because he wants peace with honor. He wants to be the president who got peace with honor. Um, I, you know, we didn't buy that. I will say this though. I think that there is an element of fear that always, that seems to fuse, uh, uh, infuse these debates with greater intensity and passion. Uh, if you look at COVID, the fear of dying from a virus um, was very strong, and reasonably so. Uh, when you have a fear like this injected into an environment with misinformation and, um, and, and sort of draconian measures, uh, people are going to be very upset, and there's going to be a lot of passion and unhappiness, and there will be arguments, and it will cause enmity. And that's what happened in the Vietnam War. We were afraid of the arms race. Um, I mean, I was a boy when people were building bomb shelters, which all turned out to be useless because the fallout would have killed us all anyway, had there been an atomic war. But there was an arms race. We were afraid of communism. We were afraid of the Soviet Union. Uh, and into that, we, it was injected an increased draft and a widening of the war in Vietnam that we were not winning and we were espousing peace but escalating the war, people were really concerned that these things didn't add up or make sense. So fear, poor communication, um, in Nixon's case, of saying something on either side of his mouth, and that he became known as Tricky Dick for saying peace on one side of his mouth and escalating the war on the other side. <laughs> um, so he, it was miscommunication, there's fear, and those two things uh, fueled... Uh, Fueled passions, fueled passions, and a deadly issue. <laughs> Similar. With um, now, the book comes out today, I believe. Is yes, that right. It's it's out. Yes, it is. And it's uh, it's called the Serpent Papers, 
and um, now is this your is this well, I guess it is your first novel. It's a debut novel, a historic novel called The Serpent Papers by Jeff Schneider. Um, yes. Jeff, have you got the bug now? Is there, uh, <laughs> there going to be a, the serpent addendum? Well, actually, <laughs> before the book got published, of course, there are sort of pre-publication copies made of the book, which are not final copies and they're not as expensive. They're made of lesser materials and they're sent to reviewers. And a lot of people who read the book before publication um, to have opinions about the book wanted to have a sequel. I mean, they want to, and I, I could write a sequel, but I'm writing a book now, another historical novel about a playwright in 1500s Tudor England and his trials and tribulations. Um, I like to write about things that I have passion for. And I do have a passion for that period of time. And I think that there, uh, there is something that was done that is incorrect about the 1500s England and playwrights at that time. And I'd like to correct that in the public eye as well. So I'm off on a different crusade, <laughs> <laughs> writing a different book. And I'm, I'm about uh, 200 pages into that book already. Um, but but I guess that sort of answers my question that you do in fact have the bug. Oh yes, I, yes. <laughs> we're going to be seeing writing. we're going to be seeing more books from Jeff Schneider, which I think is wonderful, Jeff. Um, we're almost out of time, Jeff, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Jeff, do you have a website that you could share? Thank you, yes. It's www.jschnaderauthor.com. So it's J-S-C-H-N-A-D-E-R author.com. And on that website, you can ha- you can find out about the period of time, about the book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, con- congratulations on the book, and uh, and good luck with it. I hope it does well. It sounds like uh, you've been getting good feedback so far. Yes, thank you. I've gotten some superb reviews, and I'm very pleased with them. I should also mention the book can be bought wherever books are sold, but they seem to be running low in some places. There seems to be a little bit of a run on them for the moment, but they can be bought anywhere. Well, that's that's a good thing, Jeff. <laughs> Hopefully. Anyway, yeah. thank you for uh, sharing a little bit about you and about the book and about what was going on in, in uh, on the campus of Columbia University almost 50 years ago. Um, and uh, have a great day and, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Again, Dr. Jeff Schneider. And uh, the book is called The Serpent Papers. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV 92.1 LPFM Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're uh, streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. But there's uh, lots more of the Tom Sumner program coming up after these messages. And uh, don't forget, coming up in Hour 3, we're going to 
celebrate Mardi Gras. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Sloan Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flipflip Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. presidency in 1960 and looks to be a leading contender for 1968. Hi. You have been publicly feuding with Governor Rockefeller. Of course. Would it be correct to say that you believe he has a big mouth? Uh, Not as wide, I would say, as would appear at some times in the American press. Uh, Let's go now to Mr. St. Ledger. Continuing with Governor Rockefeller, should he be chosen to run for president in 1968, When will you start campaigning for him? Within 48 hours after his defeat. (laughs) Mr. Van Voorhees. Sir, if we may make the observation, you seem to be interested in elections of all varieties. Yes, that's correct. Would you care to speculate on who you think will win the Miss Rheingold contest next year? Senator Goldwater has a a substantial lead at this point. When you were vice president, you were on speaking terms with many international leaders. Now, is your relationship with them still today as it's been in the past? Just what it's been in the past. Uh, Then have you heard from Mr. Khrushchev lately? I talked to him this morning on the telephone. Uh, Really? Uh, Where was he calling from? Uh, He had called me from Arizona. defected from Russia to the United States, what would you advise we do? Where you have a man who is vigorous, who is articulate, who has been effective, and who is honest, and who has done a good job, you send him back. Department announces that Miss Christine Keeler and Miss Mandy Rice Davies have each applied for entrance into the United States. Uh, of course, they haven't been submitted to us on an official basis. Well, I understand that. What I'd like to know is this Do you think Keeler and Davies should be admitted into this country? Well, I think it would be very bad for the country for us to go on a big spending spree at this time. <laughs> Sir, may we reminisce about your days in Washington? Of course. I was wondering, is it true that the men's room attendant at the Capitol building used to get only $25 a week salary? But I had, of course, the opportunity to talk to the president, to the secretary of state, to our various ministers in defense, and the other heads. Sir, you spend a lot of time traveling, of course. I believe you just recently returned from England. Uh, Very recently. And according to the British press, on your recent tour of England, Sir Anthony Eden is quoted as having described you as a perfect ass. Have you any comment? But that's typical British understatement. (laughs) I'd like to thank you for allowing us this opportunity to speak with you today. You've been most cooperative. Is there anything of yours that we could keep as a memento of this visit? Take California. (laughs) 
final question I should like to ask one of a personal nature that deals with your political image. I understand. It has been said by your critics, and I mean that incidentally to exclude us, but it has been said that you sometimes speak and act impulsively uh, without thinking. But I do think. Again, we didn't say that, sir, and many thanks for being with us. But I do think. I do think. There's no question in our minds. It was only hearsay at this. Thank you very much. I would just add this one point. Well, I'm sorry. I'm afraid that's all the time we have right now. But I do think. 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 This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
words are jangling your head Why did summer go so quickly? Was there something that you said? Love was warm along the shore Leave the footprints in the sand And is the sound of distant drumming Just the fingers of your hand And pictures hanging in a hole We are the fragment of our song Have remembered names and faces But to whom do they belong? And when you knew that it was over Like a wheel within a wheel Never ending or beginning On a never spinning reel As the images unwind Like the circles that you find In the windmills of your mind Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here. 